Blog Talk Radio. Morning. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We are the show that tackles some tough topics sometimes, and I think today's topic is a tough one. It doesn't apply to me personally, at least not in this particular moment in time, but it has in the past. Um, and I'll let you ponder in what way that, that, that I mean by that when we get into our conversation. With me, I have um, uh, authors Corinne Dachi and Julie Ansis. Both of these researchers and academics, uh, at least Julie has been on the show before, both of them have done a number of things in the area of gender and psychology, gender and uh, the court system. And today they're here to talk particularly about their book and their latest book and what generated that book. The book is called Gender, Psychology, and Justice. There's a subtitle there, and you ladies are going to have to fill me in because I didn't write that in my notes. What, what's the full title of your book, Julie? Gender, Psychology, and Justice, The Mental Health of Women and Girls in the Legal System. Okay. Corinne, thank you for joining us. Julie, thank you for coming on board here. Tell me about this book. What, what brought you to writing this book? Uh, we are very excited about the publication of this particular book. It's been in the making for a couple of years now. Um, both Corinne and I have been involved in work around women and girls in the legal system. Uh, my focus has been family court, and Corinne has been doing this for some time, and um, she has a chapter in the book on one of her areas of expertise, and that's the drug court. And we've been uh, speaking for some years now about sort of bringing all of this together and bringing more attention to the issue of gender uh, and the legal system. We were both chairs of the section on the advancement of women within uh, the American Psychological Association at different times. And we both made this area a theme um, of our leadership. And that's, that's really taken off in terms of bringing together diverse practitioners and scholars uh, and talking about uh, gender and how gender relates to the legal system in particular. So, you know, we're just excited that we're finally at this place that this textbook, um, which has been several years in the making, as I said, has come together. Okay. Um, well, um, Julie, a couple of uh, months ago, I guess it's been longer than that now, we had a, a young woman named Taylor Newell on the show, and she had done some research on the increase in the number of women in jails. Now, she wasn't talking federal prisons. She was talking jails, community-centered um, kinds of, of jails. And she had done some research on how this is a huge issue. Do you think that, that – ha, did you happen to see any of that in your research um, and – how does, I mean, obviously the courts are tied in with women and sentencing, but there's more to courts than just sentencing. What have you seen with gender, psychology, and the courts that ties them all together? Uh, well, with that, I think it, there's, there's a lot to that um, question that's quite interesting about uh, assumptions that court officials make and pathways to the legal system. And we do have a chapter in the book that speaks specifically to um, girls in the uh, in jails and, and women in prisons. Uh, maybe Corinne could give an overview of the book, and that would be helpful in setting uh, the context. Okay, sounds um, great. Corinne, do you want to take it, take it from here? Absolutely, yes. The book um, was designed to describe girls' and women's experiences of legal interventions in multiple arenas of the justice system. And we wanted descriptions about their initial contact, how did they come into contact with the justice system in the first place, and how did they get further caught in the, the system, what contributed to this. 
um, and what kind of interactions they had with prosecutors, judges, and other court officials. So we have a chapter that talks about those issues in family court, another one on drug treatment courts. We also address those issues in community corrections. And if you don't know community corrections, it basically refers to community-based supervisions like parole or probation. We also have a chapter that talks about women's experiences in detention centers, prisons, um, at um, the time of reentry when they return to their communities, and also chapters that talk about girls specifically in the juvenile justice system. Um, the book was meant to uh, really examine what influences legal interventions in those different arenas of the legal system and what theories in particular and assumptions legal officials have that guide their interventions and decisions. Um, it's looking at ways that different social identities around race, gender, class, sexuality shape girls' and women's experiences um, in the system and also impact their psychological and behavioral economic well-being. Okay, uh, that that's you know kind of lofty. Can we break it down a little bit? Um, when when do women experience court? When they've done, they've broken the law, or, or they're accused of breaking the law, um, and in family court, are there other exposures to court that most women experience? So uh, there are multiple pathways in terms of involvement in the criminal justice system or involvement in court. Um, there have been changes in policies and procedures that have led to an increase of women uh, who are imprisoned for nonviolent crime. Um, and that's, that's primarily due to policies stemming from war on drugs. And there are particular ways in, in which women, oftentimes relationally, get involved in uh, drug courts and, and jailed. Uh, for nonviolent crimes. Um, in the area of domestic violence, for example, there have been uh, mandated arrest laws that were intended to protect uh, women or intended to ensure that police would come uh, in response to a domestic violence call. Um, but that has led to some difficulties uh, for women in particular, particularly when police come to the scene and have difficulty differentiating who the perpetrator and who is the victim and then end up uh, oftentimes arresting women who are the victims of battery and domestic violence. Or you'll have situations where battered women fight back um, in self-defense or retaliate against their abusive partner and then are wrongly identified as the primary aggressor, arrested, uh, and then instead of being treated as somebody who's, you know, vulnerable or victim, um, becomes re-traumatized in the system as she's uh, imprisoned, has a potential felony conviction, um, and then sometimes has to undergo treatment as a batterer when she, in fact, um, is, the, is the batter. So those are just uh, I, some examples. Yeah, I know of a situation of like that personally. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you uh -huh. know, it was just, um, it, it's just amazing that that can happen. Why does mm -hmm. that happen? Um, when you talk about the criminal, na or the gendered nature of the criminal justice system, uh, that includes police, you know, arrest, et cetera. What do you mean by gendered nature? I, I will answer this question. Um, so when we talk about the gendered nature of the criminal justice system, we talk about how gender influences the justice system's responses to female offending. Um, and first, it's important to say something about the definition of our definition of gender as a multi-level phenomenon. Um, gender refers to uh, uh, beliefs and attitudes that shape how individuals, including legal officials, uh, and, and, and women express their identities, present themselves, and relate to others in social context, but also look at the macro level how gender as a social structure interacts with other social structures like race and class that determines individual social status, but also their access to power, resources, and privileges. 
how does the gender influence of criminal justice systems responses to women and girls, uh, it does so at the level of decision-making, uh, making decisions about setting bails, for example, or sentencing. Um, while we know from research that first-time female offenders are treated more leniently than boys and men, uh, we also know that repeat female offenders or female offenders that commit crimes that deviate from gender norms, for example, child abandonment, neglect, prostitution, illicit drug use, uh, those women may receive more severe sentences than their male counterparts. Um, interestingly, policies, uh, for example, in the mid-1970s, there were policy changes relating to the processing of juvenile offending. And these policies led to an increase in girls' arrest compared to boys. So girls who were running away from home and often running away from violent context or context of family violence, or uh, acted aggressively in high-conflict domestic situations to defend themselves in the first place, would be charged or could be charged with assault and be detained. Um, in addition, they could be rearrested and reincarcerated for breaking curfew as ordered by the court. Uh, so those change in policies um, that have happened in the juvenile justice system, but also related to the war on drugs, and, and Julie just talked about domestic violence, um, were explain the exponential increase in incarceration rates of, for women. We're not talking about a change in behaviors. We're talking about a change in policies that have led to that increase in, in uh, involvement in the criminal justice system. Uh, for another example would be uh, minimum sentencing uh, um, procedures for drug-related crimes that account for women's increasing involvement in the justice system. Uh, from 1986 to 1999, for example, the percentage of women sentenced to prison for nonviolent drug-related crimes increased by more than 800 percent. Um, so wow. what we have seen happen is that new policies about um, drug-related crime resulted in women's criminalization and incarceration for possession, personal use, and street-level sale of illicit drugs. Was there a similar increase in male convictions? Actually, the rates for men have decreased interestingly, and for boys as well. And so what we have seen is an increase in those rates for women and girls and a decrease or uh, um, a decrease for boys and men. Well, I suppose somebody could argue that, okay, women have gotten a break in the past, so now it's just uh, leveling out and equalizing. Is that a valid explanation for that? Julie, would you be able to <laughs> I don't, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say um, it's valid. Um, I think in, in many ways we've gone backwards with some of these policies and procedures um, that are meant to protect, uh, whether it's women or families in general, have end up, ended up disadvantaging women because essentially the same stereotypes um, about women um, have remained. So in family court, for example, um, the notion that you know, women are manipulative or, or spiteful in some way um, makes their uh, allegations of domestic violence or abuse uh, less likely to be believed. And then with that, you have the invention of and, and Heather, we spoke about this uh, last time, you know, the invention of diagnoses that are unsubstantiated, that are not empirically based, um, like parental alienation syndrome, which was um, created really um, as a result of a backlash, women coming out and talking about their sexual abuse and other traumas experienced. Um, now the tables are turned and women are seen as just making up uh, stories, you know, uh, just to be vindictive or to get back at their partner. I've even heard of situations where mm -hmm. I've even heard of situations where it's so bad that advocates are recommending that women not go to the courts with um, um, fairly um, solid yeah. evidence that their their husband may have sexually or physically abused their children. 
um, because it will be perceived against the woman as if she's just making it up. You know, one of the things that I've uh, often said, I'm not an expert in courts, but I've seen enough of it, seen situations, especially family court, where I always say the courts operate under three premises. One is that a father has a right to his children, even if he's an abuser, Mm -hmm. that a father wouldn't hurt his kids just because he's hurting his wife, and that women Mm -hmm. lie. That's it. I mean, it seems to me that, that that those are the operating principles in most of the family courts I've seen. And I've seen some really wonderful family courts, but it seems like there's still this underlying micro, it's almost a microaggression, this underlying feeling that if she's saying it, it's probably not true. There must be some ulterior motive for her saying it. Um, and, again, I haven't studied this. This is all just my opinion and my anecdotal information. But it sounds kind of like maybe some of your research substantiates some of that. Yeah. Throw me a bone here, well, ladies. Is that true? Yeah, no. No, yeah, I mean, uh, it seems to be true in terms of our experiences of interviewing women and looking at the research and looking at legislation um, that there seems to be a double standard uh, for parenting, so attorneys often advise their female clients that they have to be uh, lily white, um, mm-hmm. and women are often punishing, punished for violating what's known as the quote-unquote friendly parent assumption, this premise that each parent should provide an opportunity for a child to have a loving and open relationship uh, with the other parent, which, yeah, theoretically is, is a wonderful construct. Um, but in yeah. situations where you have abuse and, and trauma, whether the abuse is directed to the partner, female partner, or, or the, the children, um, you know, that really needs to be sort of questioned um, yeah. and understood why a woman or a child would be quite hesitant to send um, their children, the woman, for example, the mom, to the dad, um, who has been abusive in the past for, you know, visitation uh, or even consider share custody in that situation. And yes, they do. And, and the assumption that, uh, again, my experience is more with family courts than criminal courts, but the assumption seems to be on the part of the courts that if a child chooses not to see a parent or talks about not seeing a parent or refuses to see a parent, it's something that she, the, the, the other parent, usually the woman, is doing to influence them. It doesn't seem to cross their minds that children don't want to go to mean people. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's right. just illogical to me. Uh, why would a child want to go visit somebody who's been mean or hurtful or, um, you know, I mean, it's just so logical. It, it doesn't, yeah. I have a hard time understanding why courts don't kind of look at that logical explanation first before they start mm-hmm. assuming that it's someone else's fault besides mm-hmm. the parents that they don't want to see. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, when we're ta- And we're talking a lot about family courts, but also in criminal courts, is there an assumption, Corinne, um, about uh, women's behaviors or women's... Um, uh, when, when we're talking family courts, we just talked about how there seems to be an assumption on the part of the court officials and the judges um, that you know, they are doing something to interfere with this or that they might be a perpetrator when, in fact, they're a victim. Are we seeing that in criminal cases as well? Absolutely. Um, And I can talk, for example, about adult adult drug treatment courts. Um, And I don't know that everybody is familiar with uh, what adult drug treatment courts are. They're basically diversion programs um, that offer an alternative to incarceration. Um, there are programs that um, dr- drug-related offenders um, complete in the community under the supervision of a drug treatment team that includes a judge, a prosecutor, mental health professionals, as well as uh, probation officers. Um, and it, it, they vary uh, from um, district to district. Um, but in, even in those courts, women talk about some of the biases that they experience and that relate directly to um, perception of what is a good mother and who is a good mother and who is not a good mother. And definitely a woman that substances for a reason that could be related to trauma, for example. Um, 
or for other, you know, uh, potential uh, causes, um, are categorized as the bad mother. Uh, the neglectful mother, and they have to um, deal with the shame and the stigma associated with substance abuse for women as bad mothers and also in in terms of their involvement in um, family courts because they're also women who are potentially facing separation from their children. Uh, The other parent is claiming that they are a bad parent. So um, we also see those issues playing out in the criminal justice system and in drug courts in particular. Yeah, and I want to make that. I want to. I want to piggyback on the on the point that Corinne made, or several points that she made, um, to really bring the the point home that sort of women are not a monolith. You know, we're not all the same. So um, you have women of diverse racial and ethnic backgrounds, diverse socioeconomic backgrounds, etc., and those sorts of stereotypes, the implicit biases, the assumptions about girls and women who are racial and ethnic minorities or lower socioeconomic status really uh, get played out in the decision-making of court personnel. And we we know that low-income ethnic minority women and girls are more likely to be criminalized than white middle-class girls. And that uh, racial ethnic minority girls and women, for example, are labeled as immoral or untrustworthy, or less deserving of protections than uh, majority race girls and women, or women with more economic needs. Um, one of the things that uh, we haven't talked about, but I think it's related, is trafficking. Um, I have a, mm-hmm. a friend who did her PhD dissertation uh, researching um, the treatment of juveniles who are arrested for prostitution. And there's a difference in the perception of the arresting officers. Some of them see, uh, and I think it was kind of universal up to a certain age, or, or after a certain age, but then before a certain age, it was just the perception of the arresting officer. Would I, shall I arrest this, this 14-year-old for prostitution, or mm-hmm. should I get her help and recognize that she's probably being trafficked? Um, mm-hmm. And she she made some amazing discoveries. How much of this comes down to uh, a police officer for a police officer's first contact with someone? Corinne, do you want to do you want me to? Um, so you know, it's it's inter- I think it's a it's a great question because actually, sex trafficking victims are often not perceived as victims. But mm-hmm. often uh, perpetrators of a crime, they're engaging, they're, there's this perception that they're engaging in, in prostitution in a way that, on a voluntary basis. And they're often treated as offenders more than victims in the system. Um, so if the perception is that they are offenders and not victims, then they are more likely to be arrested um, and to get to enter the system in this way. And, you know, the other issue is that those um, when you are a victim of sex trafficking, you, um, you know, you will be. you're you're going to be afraid to enter into contact with or to even seek help through the legal system um, because you you know that or you have heard that other victims have been victimized, again, by the legal system, and that's that's uh, really an important issue to consider here. Okay. All right. Um, So let's consider that. Um, Let's go back um, to when we talk about the court system we have to talk about access to the system, not just forced access by by police officer or arrest or uh, divorce filing, but access to the system and the response of the system. Um, so can we address that a little bit? What do we mean? First of yeah, all, what I do mean, we mean by the court system? And, um, and, and what do we mean when we say access to the court system? Well, you know, um, when I think of access, I think of uh, access to good representation. Uh, We know that poverty, for example, is the primary determinant in girls' incarceration. Uh, And sometimes uh, they commit crimes to just secure basic needs um, for safety, for shelter, for food, or because they're um, 
traumatized, they've been sexually abused and are reliant, for example, financially on the abuser, on their pimp, uh, in the case of, of prostitution. So, you know, access to legal representation, um, they're def- definitely disadvantaged in that case. Um, when you think of structural disparities and how that plays out, again, uh, for poor women, in terms of healthcare, uh, employment, just basic employment and housing, and how that makes one more vulnerable uh, and more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system. So when I think of access, um, there's an interesting chapter in our book as well um, about women uh, from rural areas and uh, how they're in inadequate housing, formal education. Uh, and employment opportunities is just compounded by health problems that many women who enter prison experience like HIV and hepatitis C and reproductive um, disorders. Um, And we also know that women in prisons uh, and men as well have been exposed to more uh, what's known as, as adverse childhood events than the general population. So these are folks who often have been very much traumatized uh, physically, sexually, um, et cetera, and that trauma gets reactivated in the justice system as people you know, pathologize um, or psychologize victims um, Instead of what do you mean you know, by, the uh, by that? What do you mean by pathologize or psychologize? Um, well, I think our profession, which is the career uh, psychology, um, it has been uh, oftentimes responsible for perpetuating kind of assumptions about, you know, an example you were just talking about, for example, sex traffic girls or girls involved in prostitution as you know, consenting adult, consenting agents um, versus those who've experienced um, traumas in their lives. And there's definitely a focus on um, the individual and holding the individual accountable in, in the sense that it's all about an individual making better choices as opposed to really looking at some of the conditions, uh, racial conditions, gender conditions, structure structural conditions, economic conditions that make people very vulnerable um, to being criminalized. Uh, so, so that's what I mean uh, when I say we tend to focus on pathology and psychologizing the example. Going back to family court of parental alienation syndrome, as you mentioned, is a, is a perfect example of that. So the focus um, doesn't become, you know, what's going on in the system is the child um, being victimized and abused perhaps by a parent, um, but the child becomes pathologized uh, for not wanting to see an abusive parent or potentially abusive parent. The mom oftentimes gets pathologized for even bringing up abuse allegations. And so when you have these experiences, Um, It makes, over and over again, growing up, it makes sense why a lot of uh, women in particular, as you mentioned, don't want to call the cops um, because they'll see that, you know, justice is not necessarily going to get played out or they're not necessarily going to be protected. It's not like these fairy tale TV shows that we all grew up watching you know, exactly. um, with the exception of some movies where, you know, justice is going to be served and you're going to have your uh, voice heard in court and you'll be able to tell your full story in court. Oftentimes that's not I, what I, happens. I feel so sorry for, for so many people who, especially mm-hmm. in family court, where they think, oh, yes, yes, finally, someone, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to get justice. I'll be able to get some, somebody will make him or, you know, follow the rules or whatever. And mm-hmm. my heart just breaks because I think, you know, no matter how wonderful courts are, that's not where you go for justice. You go to the movies for justice. You go to courts for <laughs> law. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, and I'm not yeah. saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that we have yeah. so many people who think that we're going to go to court for justice, that somehow or other, <laughs> you know, now now somebody, you know, the principal, he'll go to the principal's office and somebody will make him, you know. 
and mm. usually that's not the case, is it? No, it's uh, it's not always the case. And um, the other the other piece about pathologizing and psychologizing is not understanding um, how what trauma looks like. So traumatized folks are often uh, very hypervigilant about their surroundings, kind of always looking for danger and how am I going to escape or protect myself here, uh, or they experience uh, mental illness or psychological disorders, so-called psychological disorders like depression or anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. So they, they come they end up looking to folks who are not trained or understanding of those issues crazy, you know, not fit, unfit to parent, for example, or unfit um, member of society. And, and you know, I actually had a family sad. court judge tell me that. I, I, I asked a family mm-hmm. court judge who I, I searched for a judge to, to be on the show, and I asked all over the you know all over the country really where is there a judge who really gets this where is this a, a judge that really understands domestic violence for example and i was referred to a woman and um i asked her you know can you tell me what goes through the mind of of a judge when you've got two people in front of you you're in family court you're debating custody issues and one person has documented domestic violence charges and one does not and yet somehow he ends up with full custody. How how does that happen? What what would a judge be thinking? And her response is, well, you have to remember that these two people standing in front of you, one is frantic and, you know, can't construct a sentence and is, you know, just all nervous and, and just really frantic, and she can't even keep her own life together, let alone that of her child. So he's standing there, and he's got it to go all together. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's, he's yeah. carry on a sentence and a conversation, and he's got it together. So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, We'll give custody to him. Right. And, and uh, I just about fell yeah. off my chair. Yeah. And um, it, it still I mean, shocks the, me that no I mean, understanding that we know whatsoever these of what what yeah. what the yeah. physiological or psychological response would be to this person on the other person's part, and she ended up losing yeah. her children because you know, I mean, it's I, I, yeah. I find it shocking that judges don't so, have more understanding than that. So do I. I find it shocking as well. I mean, this is one of one of the impetus of the, of the book is that Corinne and I um, were speaking to court officials, judges, guardian ad litems, you know, everyone involved in in the the legal system, but also our own people, you know, that is mental health professionals, psychologists, and clinicians who we hope will get more involved in this type of research and more involved in educating court personnel. Um, the, the, the sad I'm on board is, with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm on board with that. It, it clearly you know. is needed. I mean, it clearly is a, a burning mm-hmm. need out there, and I think that uh, I haven't had a chance to read more than the first chapter of your book, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, and it, clearly it's it's a need that, that, that that's out there that um, – mm-hmm. You know, people need to be made aware of this. People need to be aware of what's going on in courts. And until you're involved with it, you usually you 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 see that see it on TV. And on TV, there's yeah. always a hero, and everything always works out, doesn't it? Yep. Mhm. Yeah. Until you're involved, or somebody very close to you um, has been involved, it's it's really hard to wrap your head around uh, yeah. the realities yeah. of some of the decisions. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it really is, is just shocking. I've been reading Dr. Karen Huffer's book, um, and, of course, I don't have it in front of me for the title. Um, oh, here it is. Uh, Unlocking Justice by Dr. Karen Huffer. She's been a guest on the show, and she talks about equal access to the courts and how the courts, um, that some of these in, invisible disabilities are still disabilities that need to be that courts need to be made aware of and need to be made to accommodate um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and in reading her book, one of the first things that struck me, uh, going back to the earlier anecdote about the judge's comments about one having it together and one not having it together, um, in her book, in one of the very first chapters, she says that when someone has PTSD, one of the first places of the brain to be affected is the speech center. 
so you come across mm-hmm. disjointed and, and connected. And, all, and I read that, and I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, <laughs> this this person is not, you know, inarticulate yeah. because they can't pull it together enough to be articulate. They're inarticulate because they've been traumatized. And yet, where's, where's the education about that? And, you know. So, I don't know. Okay, that's enough of my rant. Let's go back to you. Yeah, <laughs> we're with you. <laughs> we're with <Yeah>. you. <laughs> um, so, when we're talking about the whole court system, why does this happen? Why? I mean, I, I can't believe that there's just groups of mean, nasty people who want to hurt women who, um, you know, apply for jobs at the court uh, or, or want to be justices. Why do these things happen in our court system? What are the underlying well, reasons? Well, I, I think that you, you said that, you know, these are not ill-intentioned people. And often when you work with court officials or even probation officers and parole officers, they all have good intentions. Um, they care. They want to help people. Um, they do it using principles and theories that are not gender responsive. Um, they are not informed about diversity issues and the specific needs of women in particular. Um, they often operate on principles that emphasize gender neutrality or equality, the idea that the same laws can apply to both men and women, that uh, women and men should be treated uh, similarly for the same behaviors, um, which, is not, which is not the case. And here's, that's where the problem lies. Most legal interventions actually are based on research uh, on boys and men. So what we do now is based on knowledge of what works uh, with men and boys and also what boys and men's needs are when it comes, in particular in the criminal justice system. Uh, we don't know as much, or we don't know, well, we don't certainly don't know as much about what works with justice-involved women and girls. Uh, we know more about their needs now than we did 10 years ago. The other aspect of this is that, you know, we talked earlier about biases, and the criminal justice system in particular, what you find in that system is paternalistic attitudes toward women and girls, this idea that judges feel responsible for protecting girls that are running away from home. And the way they go about it, uh, ironically, is by putting them behind bars, incarcerating them. And that's one way of protecting girls from what are perceived as risky behaviors. Um, so the, those paternalistic attitudes they also explain some of the outcomes for girls and women in the justice system. And, of course, gender stereotypes, which we discussed earlier, uh, this view that women and girls are childlike or delicate, these uh, stereotypes inform uh, what is happening in the court system. Yeah. So there's also, yes. there's, uh, Corinne is mention, mentioning uh, a lack of education and being informed in terms of gender and culturally responsive ways. And you also have conditions that are ripe for stereotyping within uh, the legal system where you have court personnel, um, whether they're, you know, making assessments, diagnoses, recommendations for the courts, judges, um, the conditions are ripe for stereotyping. So these court personnel are time pressured um, to make decisions. They're overburdened with cases. And we know that when you're time pressured, you're cognitively overburdened, you're distracted, et cetera, you're more likely to engage in stereotyping. And that's what we see get played out over and over again. So what do we do about it? We educate, we inform, we do research. I'm hearing crickets, and, ladies. What, what's the solution? What, what is the solution? We've identified the problem. The talk, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, some, there have been some positive changes in the past 15 years. More research is being done to better understand the needs and the risk of girls and women. Um, We can talk about girls in the juvenile justice system, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, The Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention has funded research on girls, at-risk girls in particular, and uh, also is funding uh, gender-responsive programming. Um, And we have now 
what we call principles for gender responsive programming. What we haven't done yet is um, develop um, programs that are comprehensive for girls and women, and we also haven't tested them. There are, to my knowledge, there are three programs right now that have been tested that have shown some promises for working with girls and women in the area of trauma and the area of uh, substance abuse as well. Um, yeah, and so... also there are there are practitioners in our book. Um, there are researchers. You see, these nurses that they're researchers as well as practitioners. So they're actually working in systems. And uh, many talk about and it, you know, our book talks about different arenas of the system and different populations. But many talk about the value of really empowering girls and, and women um, instead of treating them as um, you know, weak um, or not self-reliant or resilient, really focusing on uh, women's strengths, doing more strength-based treatment, uh, and involving them as collaborators in their own treatment in terms of decision-making and kind of preferences for treatment, whether it's individual counseling um, or group counseling. Those are very sort of empowering types of approaches where they have some sense of agency. And we know how important agency is in terms of one's self-efficacy and really feeling like a grounded individual who is in control of their world so that when people find themselves in very difficult situations, whatever that situation may be, you know, abusive situations and the like, um, that they feel that they have um, some inner strengths and inner resources that they could bring to bear um, on the situation. So programming that is, is much more, and you asked me us a moment ago about what do you mean by pathologizing. Um, again, I think many of the approaches that have come historically from uh, psychology have been very much about looking at sort of weaknesses and limitations as opposed to looking at people's inner strengths and capitalizing that and bringing that into bear, bringing that to bear in our treatments and our interventions. Well, I'm particularly interested in the role that psychology plays in the courts. Um, I, I, I might have mentioned to you I'm actually working on my Ph.D. in the in, uh, psychology field. I've been working on this sucker for so long. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That's yeah, I'll, that's I'll let that tangent go. <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if I'll live long enough to actually see those initials after my name. But anyway, you will, you um, will. That, that's a whole different show. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm particularly interested in the whole psychology field and how that uh, intersects with the court, because quite frankly, I have seen some really misinformed, well-meaning, but very misinformed practitioners of psychology. And I've seen courts that buy 100% of what they say, courts and attorneys who do that. And yep. it scares me, because I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have judges who are operating um, from whatever place they're operating from. And it's very difficult to retrain or to, uh, in my understanding, um, you know, there's not a lot of control over continuing education requirements for judges. And they get to decide what they're going to continually, you know, get continual education in. And so there's nobody who can come in, or at least nobody that I've seen yet. Maybe they are doing it in some states. But there's nobody that comes in and says, okay, judges, you have to have 44 hours of uh, training on, you know, um, the psychology of gender or something. Nobody's doing that that I'm aware Mm of. So training judges is a whole different thing. But training psychologists, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. they're required to have continuing education. They're required to uh, keep up in their profession. And yet I see so many who really don't get it. Why? Yeah. And what can be done about Corinne, that? And why Corinne do they have such about, influence in the courts? Yeah. Corinne could talk about uh, maybe um, on the field of continuing ed um, uh, training. But, you know, bottom line is that psychologists, for the most part, Mental health professionals, master's level um, mental health professionals, um, folks who get bachelor's degrees uh, in human service profession have very um, limited uh, to no training in the legal system. Um, I didn't have any training 
in the legal system, and I went through a bachelor's, master's, Ph.D. in a top department in the country. I also went to a top internship uh, placement in the country. And we simply don't get this information and and the material. Um, We often have to train ourselves unless we're in some sort of forensic psychology program or have an internship or practicum placement uh, in some area of the legal system. But, you know, bottom line, the training for mental health professionals is limited. And then there's assumption, and I've seen this too in the courts, that if somebody has, say, a master's degree in social work um, or is a licensed professional counselor, then they have expertise in any, in any number of areas, uh, including trauma and sexual abuse, um, uh, psychopathy, etc. And we know that that's simply uh, not the case and that oftentimes they're coming into situations uh, as human beings with biases. And as you said, you know, their words, their assessments have tremendous impact on the decision-making of the judges who are really relying on them as the so-called experts. So that's, that's a problem there in terms of our own field and, and profession. Corinne, did you want to say anything mm-hmm. more about that? Well, and, and, uh, you, you, want, you want a chance to nail the, put a nail in the coffin of psychology for me here, Corinne? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and not only the lack of training, it's true that I have a similar experience um, Julie had in her own, you know, psychology program or internship program. I did not know anything about the court, so I did not know anything about a criminal justice uh, system until I actually did uh, an internship or, you know, a practicum or, or sought the experience myself on, on, a, on a kind of voluntary basis. Um, I had very little knowledge, so I had to educate myself, and this is where my research comes from. It's, my research is also an effort to educate myself about what is happening for women and girls in the criminal justice system in particular. Um, and I also think that as psychology has not made a substantial contribution to research on women and girls in the justice system, and that's with the exception of domestic violence, um, we have a lot to contribute in that domain. We have a lot to do. And I think the book is itself a, a call for greater participation in the development and implementation of problem-solving justice, for example, and gender-informed programming in the justice system. Um, I, you know, I, I, I am personally an, an advocate of uh, using uh, empirical evidence using research mm-hmm. to inform what we do. And I think it's critical that we use the psychological knowledge that we have, even the, that psychological knowledge that we have about diversity, uh, women and girls, substance abuse, trauma, and apply it to the legal system. We haven't done that yet. Um, you know, when I think of uh, drug treatment courts in particular, um, those, uh, those courts, you know, why not have a psychologist? as a member of the treatment team to um, inform and the psychologist, of course, that is educated, that um, knows about women's and girls' issues, um, diversity issues, and that can educate the court uh, and uh, shape their decisions about legal interventions or even treatment decisions. What's happening in drug courts is you have probation officers, judges, um, prosecutors making decisions about treatment. Um, they do have, may they may have a mental health professional on the team, but it's it's the vote. Uh, it's everybody votes, and the majority of um, the team members are not mental health professionals. So that's to me an, an anomaly. And then you always have the the risk of, uh, you know, with any court, whether it's a judge or a psychologist or any other court person, you, there's always the risk that even if you require a psychologist to be part of that team, they're not necessarily going to be a well-informed or um, helpful psychologist. Right. So, right. you know, but but I guess, you know, the first step is let's get, let's, let's get the, you know, let's get in the door and then we can start you know, honing down the quality and improving the quality, I suppose. But I don't know. There was one thing that you ladies were talking about earlier, and we're almost out of time, but I did want to talk about it. And you said that um, right now we tend to think, or we have tended to think, that all laws, that all of these rules, um, judgments, etc., could be applied equally to men and women. And that's not the case. 
And I want to tell you I am sorry because I was in that wave of feminism where we tried to convince everybody that men and women were all the same and the only difference between us were socially imposed differences. Since then, I've had a son, and I know that there is a difference. Since then, I've learned about what's going on in some of these things. There is a difference. We need to have rules, laws, treatments, etc., that apply to our particular needs, skills, wants, etc. And so I just wanted to give you my apology as being part of that whole movement that there's nothing, there's no difference. <laughs> um, there is. And, and I'm glad to see that uh, we are starting to recognize that there are differences. And, uh, and again, my apologies for being out on the marching, you know, 30 years ago, telling everybody that there's no difference. Um, you're supposed to laugh at that. <laughs> No, no, thank you. You're right. But historically, we did. We we fought so hard because the differences were so so arbitrary and so hard and fast. You know, a generation of women did fight to say, no, we don't need these differences. We are not that different. Um, And the pendulum swung so far that we got to the situation that you're talking about. And so um, we need to swing back. So, um, you know. Everything yeah. needs to be in perspective. So uh, I'm glad to see that women, you know, women are at least uh, at an academic level. Um, we're starting to see, thanks to you, that there are some differences, and that there, in order to be effective and in order to be a good system, we need to recognize some of those. So thank you. What's next for you, both of you, either individually or together? What, what's coming next? Well, um, we have um, organized a symposium for the upcoming uh, American Psychological Association conference that will be held in uh, Washington, D.C. in August. And so, yay. So um, Corinne and I are going to be involved in that symposium as uh, chairs and discussants. And we've organized a panel of just some of the book authors to serve on that panel. You know, and the hope is to educate. We've seen very little, um, surprisingly so, when we go to, uh, and we've been going for years to the APA conference, uh, you know, how thick the book is. And there are hundreds and hundreds of presentations. Um, But we've seen very little um, work uh, the cross sections of counseling psychology in particular and work in the justice system and the legal system. So we're hoping to inform, you know, our colleagues uh, on the topics and issues. And we've presented internationally as well. We had a, a presentation at an international psychology conference in, in Paris a couple of years ago and uh, are continuing to try to educate, you know, our, our, our colleagues. Okay, um, and you mentioned international. How how are we doing in comparison with other countries around the world on these issues? Well, I, you know that's a hard question because there's so many issues that are covered in in the book. I know in um, in family court, it really um, it really differs from country to country. I think as long as you have at base. Because um, you apologized for your your um, your generation, and I and I understand what you were saying there. Um, but I think at base, as long as we have sexism, racism, classism, um, no matter what policy we put in place that you know, theoretically is supposed to sort of equalize things, no matter what policies in place, as long as we have sort of those isms happening. Um, it's not going to get played out in ways that are fair uh, to folks who are uh, essentially the victims of sexism, racism, et cetera. You know, we see that, for example, with the mandatory arrest laws. Um, and so I think that's really what's at base there, you know, despite our attempts to sort of equalize things. If we don't start changing people's assumptions, and attitudes and biases that there's not going to be a lot of difference in terms of really achieving equity. 
Okay. And when I was talking about internationally, and I, I'm obviously, you know, the whole world is different places and different opinions and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I was asking you is, do you see some some countries that are uh, taking this more seriously, that are really making more strides than we are? Um, and if so, what are they doing differently? Well, you know, every, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the criminal justice uh, system in particular. You know, it, the, even the, the conception of what justice or criminal justice is, um, the U.S. is one of uh, the countries that incarcerate the most of its, you know, um, the higher percentage of, of, of its population compared to European countries, for example. Uh, but that varies from one country to another. So it, it goes back to how do we conceive of justice? Um, how do we conceive of rehabilitation? How do we conceive of even how do we use incarceration um, in this country compared to elsewhere? Um, so, you know, we've we've heard in the news recently how, you know, there have been outcries about the the increase in incarcerated population in this country in particular, and we don't fall far behind um, uh, Russia, for example. Um, you know, and, and how we, you know, what can we do to reduce the, the, the number of people behind bars? Um, so it's it's something to take into consideration as we're thinking of, you know, in comparison to other countries. It's all, it's it's kind of a broader issue, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And when you look at that broader issue through the eyes of gender, um, I think that you know it, it becomes so so complex. Um, and one other thing I wanted to, to uh, reiterate when you were talking earlier about the effect on people, I think you, you were talking about um, limitations and you know that kind of thing. Um, the the sense of powerlessness that one gets when exposed to court situations often. That sense of powerlessness um, is huge. It's just huge. And I I would hope that somewhere in your futures maybe uh, looking at, um, you know, particularly uh, the sense of powerlessness that one has uh, in dealing with courts and court situations might be a topic that somebody could do some research on. That's just my little little thing there. Um, But I, I think that you know, for me, seeing almost universally, no matter which court, no matter which um, situation, there is that feeling of powerlessness. And is there a way to increase that sense of power? Because I think my own little pet theory is, is that when we feel powerlessness is when we make a lot of mistakes. And when we feel powerless, that's when we make a lot of bad decisions. Um, so it seems to me that that might be an area of study in relation to the courts. So just saying, okay. <laughs> yes. Well, that's our field, you know, talking about coping um, and the importance of resilience and the importance of seeking um, social support networks who can validate one's experiences is really crucial uh, to your mental health, especially when you're experiencing and not only past traumas, but traumas from systems which you would expect um, to protect you, you know, um, and you realize that they don't always protect you, uh, and you find yourself in (laughs) crazy-making kinds of situations. That that, Mm -hmm. that coping is essential. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. This is is a very important topic you you raised, uh, this idea of powerlessness. And if you think of how this Mm -hmm. court is structured, who has the most power in the court? Um, even when you go, you know, if your own personal experience with family court, you, the judge makes the decision. The judge has the final say. The judge has yes. the power, not you. And how yeah. do we change that balance between, you know, how, do we, how does the judge share power with the people involved in the process? That's a big question. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Dude, I, I don't think it has ever occurred to us usually to think of judges sharing any kind of power. Mm-hmm. We go to them. For you know that that judge is God; he gets to decide who who cuts the baby in half. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But the idea of sharing power for a better outcome—that's an interesting one. That's a that's a different show. When you do your research on that, give me a call. When you write the book, we'll do another show. Okay? Sounds <laughs> <laughs> good. We have, but we but have first, you have to get the that, judges but on board. It's in the form of articles. We have done that. Yes, yeah, it's in the form of articles, not our book and book chapters. <laughs> Okay. All right. This has been a a very interesting topic. Great research. Again, if someone wants to access your book, Julie or Corinne, where where would they go? 
They would go to the NYU website, nyupress.org, where they will find the book. They can also go on Amazon. Okay, Amazon.com. And as I said off air, uh, having written a book once back, way back when in the Dark Ages, I had a, a very accomplished author says to me, say to me, you haven't written a book. Your book doesn't exist until it's on Amazon. So <laughs> you pretty much have to have it on Amazon. Um, so, again, the name of the book? The full name of the gender, book. Psycho- gender Psychology and Justice, The Mental Health of Women and Girls in the Legal System. Great. And that's by Corinne Dachi and Julie Ansis, both doctors, right? Yeah. Right. Both have the both PhDs. <laughs> One of these days, okay? One of these days. <laughs> you will, you will. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to live long enough for it, but we'll see. Um, all right. So, uh, gender psychology and justice, thank you so much for being with us. I usually end the show with a quote. I have a, I've, I found a really dark, I must say something about my mood today, but I found a really dark, dark uh, quote for today. Um, but nevertheless, I may say something. It's by uh, Tamora Pierce, an author. Thus went my first court day. I think I'm going to puke. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. <laughs> 